This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Ethical Challenges of Clinical Research in Babies by Dr. Benjamin Wilfond. Hi, I'm Ben Wilfond. I'm the director of the Truman Katz Center for Pediatric Bioethics at Seattle Children's Hospital. I'm a pediatric pulmonologist by training, and most of my scholarship is focused on the ethical issues of clinical research. Today, we'll be talking about the specific ethical challenges of doing clinical research in the NICU. I'm going to begin with a story that some of you may be familiar with, but others may not be. This is the story of what's called the support study. I first became aware of the study when I saw in the New York Times an editorial criticizing the study and describing the study as representing a failure that was described as startling and deplorable related to the lack of information provided on informed consent documents. This was a study regarding the use of oxygen in premature babies. And as a pulmonologist, I get very intrigued by this. I started looking at the consent forms, and I noticed something very interesting. On one hand, the purpose was described fairly accurately, as in this example here, to, to pinpoint the exact range that should be used to prevent some of the problems that occur in premature babies. However, if we look at the risks and benefits, you'll notice something very interesting. On one hand, there's a description that there are no increase of risk in the child. However, the, it goes on to say that there may be benefits to the child directly, including a decrease in the need for eye surgery. So I thought this is very fascinating because usually risks and benefits go together. So either this is a study that has very few benefits and risks or significant benefits and risks on both sides. The reason for the controversy about the study had to do both with the description of risk and informed consent. And as I looked at this issue, I realized that this was pretty complicated. I started talking with my colleagues about this, and our concern was, in fact, that this was not the controversy that it was made out to be. And so we wrote a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine suggesting that the findings of the OHRP, the federal organization that critiqued the study, overreached. And while we acknowledge that the informed consents could have been improved, as I described, we disagree that the random assignment of infants imposed additional risks that the investigators failed to disclose. Now, this was not a uniform view, and in fact, two weeks later, colleagues wrote a second letter to the New England Journal, and they expressed the concern that given the serious deficient nature of the consent documents, the determination of OHRP was correct. So the issue here has to do with what do we focus on? Do we focus on the informed consent documents, which I agree were not ideal, or do we think about the issue of whether there was an actual risk to these children from being in the study? What's really important in my mind is to think about how this can be perceived by parents themselves. A few months later, there was an article in the Tampa Bay Times from a journalist who herself had a premature baby. She wrote this fascinating article, and there's two quotes I want to describe to you because they really represent the epitome of the struggles that she faced. First, she commented about the forms themselves and described that signing, in this case, permission forms to be in the NICU were the first official act as her mother. But the only thing she remembered when she signed those forms, that she was her mom. 
She then goes on and talks about the support study and thinks about it, and Muse says, what if she had been asked to enroll? And she said, had I been asked, I probably would have signed her up. And if things had gone well, I might have believed the study had helped. But if things had gone poorly, I might have blamed the study and fear I'd been duped. So this is the essence of the issues in my mind with a study like the support study, which has to do with how do we convey this to parents? How do we think about risks? How do we make people comfortable participating in research? And so to address these issues, what I'll be doing is talking about the complicated terrain of research. I'll describe eight ethical benchmarks for research, talk briefly about what is different about pediatric research, discuss the clinical research interface, which the support study represents, talk more specifically about research on medical practices, and also about the role of relationships in resolving these issues. So it's important to think about that clinical research is not all the same. It occurs in different contexts. And I will describe four different contexts that each independently are important in thinking about randomized clinical trials and clinical research in general. The first is a clinical context. This can include whether or not the clinical circumstances are life-threatening, whether the intervention that's being addressed has to be done in an emergency or one that can be thought about over time, and finally, whether there are already clinically effective options or not. The second context is the research context. For example, we can think about whether or not this is a novel biological approach. We can think about the stage of the development and whether this is an early phase study or a later phase study where there's more evidence of safety and efficacy. And we can also think about whether or not there's an expectation for adverse events from the study itself. We can also think about the social context in which the research is occurring. We can think about what sort of social and community resources are available to provide access to standard care. And also, we can think about the community attitudes about participation in research. These can also affect how a clinical study is evaluated. Last, I want to talk about the psychological context. And by the psychological context, I'm thinking of both the researchers as well as the patients that complicate how we think about clinical research. And there's two terms that are worth considering here. First is the notion of equipoise, which has to do with differences in professional opinions about the uncertainty of treatment. And the concept here is that the justification for clinical research is when there is equipoise, when there is uncertainty among clinicians about what is most appropriate. For example, in the study we described before regarding the appropriate oxygen saturation levels to maintain in the NICU, there was professional disagreement about which was the right number. The second concept is what's often described as the therapeutic misconception, which has to do with the fact that often patient expectations from research uh, may not be a realistic. And so often efforts are made to try to reduce those patient expectations to avoid them being unrealistic. So because of these terrains, we, have, we can think about why ethical guidelines for research are necessary. As we know, clinical research's goal is to develop generalizable knowledge to improve health or increase our understanding of biological factors that can have an impact on health. The people who participate in clinical research are means to securing that generalizable knowledge. But as a means, there's a potential for these individuals to be exploited. And by that, I mean they can be taken unfair advantage of for the benefits of others. And so to address this concern, there are eight ethical benchmarks for clinical research that will hopefully help minimize the possibility of that exploitation. 
So I'm going to describe these eight ethical benchmarks for you. The point here is that these are eight considerations that are relevant to thinking about clinical research. And each of these are often in tension with each other, so it's a matter of thinking about all of them and then balancing them. The first four benchmarks are specifically about the study itself. These include the social value, i.e., is this an important thing to study? Scientific validity, is the study designed effectively to answer the question? Is there fair subject selection, i.e., are the people who are in the study the appropriate people for the study, and are we not inadvertently taking advantage of people because of their circumstances? And finally, is there a favorable risk-benefit ratio for those who participate in the research? In addition, there are four other benchmarks that I would describe as process benchmarks that are relevant to all research. This includes thinking about informed consent, having respect for the potential enrolled subjects, a process of independent review, such as an IRB, and finally, having collaborative partnerships with the population that you're studying. And so these eight ethical benchmarks provide a structure for thinking about whether a clinical research study may be ethically appropriate. Now, in pediatric research, there's greater emphasis on social value, risk-benefit ratio, and independent review compared to research in the adult context. And so the idea here is that for a pediatric research study to go forward, the IRB particularly looks at the social value, the importance of the study, and ensuring that there's a favorable risk-benefit ratio. And in fact, there's less of an emphasis on informed consent. The IRB is essentially replacing some of what an adult would typically do with regards to informed consent, i.e. making a decision for themselves, because in the pediatric context, we only permit parents to make decisions when there's adequate social value and a, a reasonable risk-benefit ratio. And in fact, we don't even think of informed consent for pediatric research. We actually refer to it as parental permission. Because of this consensus that parental permission is a much more limited authority than consent, and it does require this external assessment that the risk is not greater than what one scholar called what a scrupulous parent would consider. This was actually from a paper written about 20 years ago by Benjamin Friedman and colleagues from McGill. This is a very important concept to think about. The notion here was that the IRB should act as though they're a scrupulous parent being very particular about what they would allow their child to do. And only in those contexts would a, the average parent be allowed to consider enrolling their child. The way in which the scrupulous parent metaphor is instantiated in the regulations for pediatric research is by thinking carefully about the level of benefit and the level of risk. And as you see from this graphic here, research can either offer a prospect of benefit or not a prospect of benefit. If there is a direct prospect of benefit, then the risks have to be justified by the benefits. On the other hand, if there's no prospect of direct benefit, there is a greater limitation to when research can go forward. It can be more than minimal risk, but it can't be more than a minor increase over minimal risk. The challenge here is what do these words minimal risk, minor increase, or more than a minor increase mean? Because these are not defined very clearly. Minimal risk is defined as experiences that occur in daily life or typical clinical examinations, but there's no definition of a minor increase or more than a minor increase. Around 15 years ago, we asked a number of IRB chairs what they thought about a series of procedures to think about whether or not these were classified in one of these categories. The most important thing to see from this slide is that there was no 
uniformity among these IRB chairs about how they would describe these procedures that you see on your screen into these categories. So this acknowledges the subjectivity of thinking about risk as well as the subjectivity of thinking about benefit. So what I'm going to do now is switch and talk about the challenges we face when we try to do research in a specific clinical context such as the NICU. Now I'm going to start by sharing with you some results of a project that I was involved with that involved an evaluation of nine research studies that were doing genome sequencing in a clinical context. And what's interesting in this evaluation that we did where we talked with investigators at the nine sites is that we described different ways in which this clinical research interface occurred. And this was a spectrum. On one extreme at the top, there was a sense that clinical care and research are seen as being very distinct. And in this context, consent to participate is usually sought by research personnel, often in a space that's specifically dedicated to research. Moving across that spectrum, they can be seen as distinct but still interdigitated. And this means that there's more of an interaction between the research team and the clinical team. There may be handoffs between the two at varying points, but there's more of a relationship. The next two really represent the other side of the spectrum in which clinical care and research are very much intertwined. In one case, this is more dynamic and evolving and negotiated uh, as the study goes along. However, in some cases, there's a sense that there's a complete merger of clinical care and research, and they become indistinguishable. The point I want to share with you from describing the results of this study is to acknowledge that there is a range of the ways that clinical care and research can be related to each other. In part, it may relate to the context in which the research is going on in terms of what's being studied. It may be related to the community. It may be related to a number of different factors. But there's more than one way this can occur. To understand this better, I'm going to make a distinction and show on one side medical practice, on the other side research. And in the middle, I'm going to describe what I will describe as research on medical practices. And here we're talking about research that's evaluating standard treatments, such as in the support study, evaluating the use of oxygen. What's important to realize is that this distinction has implications for how we evaluate risk, how we think about consent, what sort of oversight is needed, and the role of the relationships between clinicians and patients in making decisions. So the first point I want to make has to do with the issue of risk. And this is uh, taken from a paper that I wrote with a colleague of mine regarding the support study that we described before. And we really focused here on the issue of risk. Our concern here was, again, this worry that the risks of clinical care and research can be conflated. And so the concern is that if IRBs and investigators exaggerate the risks of research, it will make it harder to recruit children into research but more importantly, as you saw with my example earlier from Kelly Benham, parents may misattribute unavoidable risks of clinical care as avoidable research risks. Another issue that comes up related to this is a question of whether a clinician themselves can obtain parental permission to participate in a research study. In many cases, particularly in the example of the spectrum where research and clinical care is seen as distinct, it would be thought as being inappropriate 
for a clinician to ask a patient directly to participate in research rather than having a researcher make that request. However, in my view as well as others, uh, this may be an outdated shibboleth. What's important is to think about what parents and patients consider about participation research. We did a series of focus groups of patients asking them about what was important to them in making decisions to participate in research on medical practice. We learned that trust and shared decision-making were critically important. The patients appreciated that practice variation exists, but they trust that their doctor will make the best medical decisions for them. And trust in their doctor is also central to willingness to participate in research and medical practices. Another thing that we found out from this focus group was that most patients assume that medical record review and data sharing are occurring and are supportive, but they want that their doctor to ask for permission and make recommendations to participate in research involving medical record review as well as research involving randomization. In both cases, what they prefer is a direct short conversation rather than a long consent form. One thing we also found was that they had a difficulty appreciating the differences between research and medical practices versus research to evaluate new treatments. I want to say a bit more about one of our subsequent studies that we did uh, based upon those focus groups. We compared the views of IRBs to patients about approaches to consent for research and medical practices. And one of the things we asked was who should obtain consent? And what we found was that IRB professionals, more of them thought that the researcher or study coordinator should be the person to obtain consent, not the clinician. However, when we asked patients, we found is that most patients prefer to have their clinician involved in their care get permission from them. The study I had previously described to you was a hypothetical survey where both the IRB members as well as patients were presented with hypothetical scenarios. What I'm going to do now is share with you some similar results from a survey that was done among parents who had enrolled in a neonatal clinical trial. In this case, uh, what was known as the PEANUT trial, which is looking at the impact of erythropoietin on neurocognitive outcomes. One thing we were interested in knowing was what was the impact of the role of the person who obtained parental permission on the decision whether to enroll in the PEANUT trial. We surveyed approximately 160 parents and asked them who obtained permission from them to enroll in the trial. And we then looked at whether that had an impact on whether they decided to enroll or not. The thing to notice here is that while most of the patients were enrolled by a study coordinator, there were a number of patients who were enrolled by somebody who was either the attending physician, a research physician, or in some cases, they were both. You can also see that in general, because of the small sample size, we did not see any differences in terms of whether people enrolled or not. And in all cases, more than 50% of individuals agreed to enroll in the study. We asked these same parents their preferences about who they would like to enroll them in a future study based upon their experience with the PEANUT trial. And what we found is that more than 50% preferred that their infant's doctor be the person who enrolls them in the study. So the point of 
this empirical information is to remind ourselves that patients value relationships with clinicians and they seek their advice even if they don't follow their advice. But it's important that clinicians provide advice, whether it's about clinical care or about research. Clinicians in general need to be attentive to patient values, preferences, and perspectives in all encounters. There's always a concern that efforts of clinicians can influence decisions and it can potentially cross a line. And clinicians have to be mindful of this problem generally. However, it's still feasible to support and encourage research participation in a way that's consistent with patient values and interests as it would be to do that for clinical care. So I want to end by suggesting that during your career, as you become more involved with research, you will find ethical issues that you find complicated and perplexing. And what I want to end with is to suggest that there are often resources that you can turn to in addition to the IRB that can help you with this. Many institutions have clinical research ethics consultation services that can be places that can provide solutions if you're facing challenging situations in the research that you're conducting now or conducting in the future. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.